Brock, I've got a bone to pick with you. So in the penultimate like five minutes of the previous discussion, you were discussing a like a node, some node code you wrote, <laughs> and Eric kind of did a major callback and brought it back around and like asked you if you had unit tested it. Mm-hmm. And your <laughs> you you hadn't, which is fine. And your response, though, like you, you said, you said that the, the code didn't lend itself to being unit tested. But based on the description you gave, it sounded to me almost like a perfect case for you know doing that test driven, with ex- with yeah. perhaps the exception that it was like one off code. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. That was the the major reason. It was just a utility that I was going to use, yeah. like one off. But after the the last recording, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking that uh, th- there were several functions in there that I could have designed unit tests for that would have kind of lended itself to being TDD if it so needed to be. Right. Like it's. I mean, to me, if it's got especially if it's very self-contained and it's got clear inputs and clear outputs, that that's the sort of thing that, you know, that screams TDD to me. Hello, Jeremy. Hey, hey. I'm not, like, one of those religious TDD guys where you have to test drive everything. Mm-hmm. I'm sad. We're recording. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. <laughs> but like the, you know, it, there's there's code that it definitely should not be. It, there's definitely no return on investment for mm-hmm. test driving. But the code that does make sense to test drive, that section, I'm making hand gestures. That section, I am kind of religious about. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely test drive it if you can. Because the rest of your code is only going to serve to screw it up. You know, it was really interesting. Last weekend, uh, I got to be down at Codestock. I was listening to a presentation by a guy named Dan Thayer, mm. which was fantastic. And you should totally go check out his blogs. He's done some really interesting stuff with the Internet of Things. And he, like, connected a Microsoft Connect to a Netduino to a Z-Wave device. And so in his living room, he could point at things and make a gesture and turn them on and off. So, like, if he was pointing at the <laughs> Christmas tree, he could, he could turn on the Christmas tree by waving his hand in front of his face. It's like Fonzie. Yeah, and if he, <laughs> if he pointed at the fireplace, he could turn the fireplace and point at the lamp. Nice. But the reason I bring this up was he was talking about the benefits he got from unit testing. And he did have some really interesting and complicated vector math to figure out, to do the calculation of what he was pointing at. Because he's, like, doing this 3D... Like, basically generate a line in 3D space and figure out what it inter- intersects with. But uh, he was, had this Netduino code and this Connect code, and he had it all factored out so he could unit test. And he really did make a good point. Like, if I can unit test it, then I don't have to sit there and point, like, every time I want to test it, like, stand up and point. And so it was one-off code, but he got benefit from being able to improve his accuracy by running lots of unit tests on it. And it helped. I agree. It, it helped that it was C, you know, because he was using a Connect and a Netduino, it was C sharp all the way down. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear him talk about unit testing and physical computing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you wouldn't think it'd be easy to even test the gesture. Right, but the way he has code factored, the gesture then became a set of 3D points, right? So mm -hmm. if you've ever looked at the Connect API, really what you're getting back is a set of points that represent the different joints. So wrist, elbow, shoulder, hip, knee, neck, head. Mm -hmm. And so when you like bring those back in as an array of points, they can pass in an arbitrary array of points to a unit test. Yeah, at a certain point, at a certain depth, I should say, it feels like everything becomes pretty clear in terms of inputs and outputs. It's just you got to find the right depth. Mm -hmm. Too deep is wrong, too. Like, too close to the back end. Mm -hmm. Right. Although, I guess the back end is really just another external interface if you're thinking in the, you know, the what was it, hexagonal architecture. Yeah, he clearly was stubbing out whatever part of the code was turning on the fireplace. Although it would be fun to have unit tests that start a fire. Yeah, yeah, the integrate they're actually <laughs> integrated with the fireplace. <laughs> when you whenever you run the tests. It'd be confusing in a long time. Let me go back and add the unit test, but <laughs> at this point, the the one part of the the script that I wrote that I think would be unit testable would was the handling of the IP expanding the IP address ranges mm -hmm. but uh, the the rest of the code that I was using was from someone else's or was was someone else's mm -hmm. so I, I did, the other code did it on a one off basis uh, it converted a an IP address subnet mask mm -hmm. into IP address ranges or into an IP address range which is useful if you only need like one or two but as soon as you need like 30 or 40 or more it kind of makes sense to kind of encapsulate that code and make it yeah. more automated yeah and that's the thing that i run into a couple of things that i run into you know when it's hard to it's hard to justify the extra effort of test driving a piece of code if it's either a very it's a small project or it's like you said, it's a one-off situation. Mm -hmm. It's not really going to be code that's core to a system or lasts for a long time. Yeah. But I've also seen more than one system in full production, full production code that was originally written as temporary code, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was it was very sad. That never happened. For everybody involved. So. The whole it's temporary code thing is, is a, definitely a gamble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a, this was a long time ago at a different employer, uh, but we had written a test data generator. Excuse me, we, ha we didn't have one, and so when we were doing tests, we had to do a lot of manual input. And so I'd ask my tech lead if I could take a couple of days and write a test data generator. And he goes, well, I don't want you to take a couple days. I want you to do it one day. And I realize you won't finish it. Just do it as fast as you can. So I cranked it out in a day. It definitely wasn't finished, but it, you know, it was one of those 80-20 things where we covered 80% of the use cases. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon everyone on the team started using it. A couple months later, we get a call from the client saying, hey, we found a bug in the test data generator. And my first thought was, how in the world did you get the test data generator? <laughs> 
And uh, they said, oh, you know, so-and-so gave it to us. We, we really rely on it now. But we found a bug. I'm like, you didn't find a bug. You found something I never intended to implement. But it was one of those really terrifying moments where I was realizing that a client that was now relying on a piece of software that I was in no uncertain terms told to write as fast as possible. <laughs> and in the end, we, I ended up getting permission to rewrite the whole thing from scratch. Uh, I mean, it only took a week, but. Yeah, the law of uh, you know unintended consequences. Um, but yeah, at no point in the future would this script be used for <laughs> as part of yeah it's pretty much guaranteed especially if you put it in the comments mm -hmm. um, so on this test data generator were you generating data for scenarios that you already had defined that you already knew should or shouldn't exist or kind of it was one of those things where in that particular application it was a medical application that basically we needed to de generate different scenarios around meal plans in broad terms how much and how many calories and when have you eaten in the last 72 hours and so uh, we had this spreadsheet template and so you would fill in the spreadsheet and then it would convert it it would then read it in the spreadsheet and generate a data file sure. i'm just asking because in the bi world that's kind of i guess more the type of testing we would probably do don't have much use for unit testing code because we're not really writing a whole bunch of code but we're testing on data sets but I was asking because a lot of time the data sets we're working with already exist so yeah. so so from a testing standpoint in in your you just basically mock up uh, a set of test data that's designed to exercise all the cases yeah yeah and I mean a lot of that too were and we'll pull in the actual data and kind of compare that, but we we take we take subsets out, you know, the different cases, and then we then we try to find go back to the entire set. You know, we we we'll take a subset out that represents a specific test case, test against it, make sure everything's working. But then then we always have to go back to the the full data set though and make sure there's not some outlier there because I mean, you know, so this should cover 100% of the data, but then we have to go back and say, okay, is there junk data or any other weird, you know, scenarios that we don't know about? Does that come down to like a manual inspection or specific queries? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll end up being a manual inspection if we see it. A lot of times we can just run it on, run the logic on the whole data set and then, you know, we know what the row count, you know, or whatever should be. We can use those same queries to say, okay, we know what what we should see now, and if it's different, yeah, then we then we can go back and look for what you know what the outliers are, and at that point, you're kind of it's kind of manual. But do you know if any of the any of the TDD culture or techniques have made their way into BI at all? Like, are there people doing this and like doing any kind of automated testing? Not that I first? know. Like, they would of. Maybe, maybe write a a query that for what they expected and then then make it happen in the you know yeah in the code you're writing and we kind of we kind of that's kind of what we do but i don't know that it's i wouldn't say it's automated yeah like you don't keep those testing queries somewhere and keep running them mm -hmm. yeah it'd be interesting to see if anybody's doing anything like that yeah that's a good that's a good point I've never really thought to research it a whole lot yeah could you have some kind of framework that would 
just have an expected result and mm -hmm. you have a set of queries you just run through all 50 queries in a short period of time yeah we could write one <laughs> hang on you guys I'll be right back <laughs> you could definitely see something like that as useful but every project's different too because then the other thing is if depends on where the query's running. If it's running on a production system, they don't have a test environment. You could you don't want to run something too heavy. In the context of a BI project right. where you're pulling you know, you're dealing with well, you're already millions of rows of data. Heavy, you're kinda of already running Yeah, but it's it's running on a schedule at, you know, one in the morning or something. When it's more convenient. Yeah. It was interesting we had a discussion on my current project about how fast several queries should be returning. And we brought Travis in to do some query optimization for us, and Carrie helped a little bit too. But the developers saw the database and it was several million rows. I'm like, oh man, this is, this is big. And Travis looks at it and like, oh, just several million rows, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't bring the one note. What was the next topic of conversation? Well, how, how was your presentation? My presentations went really well. Conference was really good. A lot of good content out there. Doc Norton was there. His session was probably my favorite session of all. It was more about team lead stuff. But one of the things that he said that was really good was he was talking about, you know, as a technical manager or a technical team leader, which he kind of differentiated the two. He said that one thing you should do if you're making a decision is tell your team how this decision is going to be made and so their expectations are set. So let's say you're selecting a mocking framework. In some cases, as an architect, you might say, we're going to use mock and that's the end. And sometimes you might say, I think we should use mock. What do you think? Um, or I'm trying to remember the whole in it. Like, so it goes from... I'm telling you what we're going to do, or I'm telling you to make the decision and you just tell me what you decided. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the middle would be like, well, you give me suggestions and then I'll decide. You made some good points about a lot of times if your team knows how the decision is going to be made, then they have proper expectations of what's going to happen. You know, you don't, you don't want to step on someone's toes because they think that they're gonna get to help make the decision. Meaning, so like if you don't, if you don't give them a heads up as to how the decision is going to be made, what are the, what's the fallout from that? What's the bad thing that happens? So let's say that in your daily standup, you say, we're gonna pick which ORM we're gonna use. And one of your teammates says, I really think we should use N-Hibernate. And they think that you're gonna vote but really, it's just the architect gets to decide. They might be upset because they might not feel heard. But if you tell them up front, say, hey, you know, this is, as a technical team leader, I'm going to be making this decision. This is not a democracy. Yeah. And maybe that's because as a technical team leader, you know more about the production environment or the skill set of the team members or whatever. Yeah, not that you're lording it over someone, but. Did he suggest actually saying that? This is not a democracy? Mm hmm. Pounding the table right after. <laughs> We're here to preserve democracy, not practice it. But he actually had a, like he had names for the different 
um, levels of decision, depending on how much of a democracy it was going to be. Plus, if people feel heard, they're going to, even if they don't get their way, they're going to feel like they have more, uh, you'll be able to get more buy-in uh, right. to your decisions. And if someone, if you ask for input and someone knows that they are in fact only giving input and not voting, they might feel happier when they, uh, if their choice is not accepted because mm -hmm. they have the proper expectation. Yeah, if you don't end up going with type data sets. Right. See, I thought I when, you said, you when you said, uh, <laughs> tell them how you're going to make the decision, what I thought you were going to say was you would say, these are the criteria that we're looking for in whatever tool we choose, and that's how we're going to make the decision based on that so that everyone would know that. That's what I thought you were going to say. But, I mean, that's a, that's a very valid point, too, right? Is that, you know, when you have to make those types of decisions... Don't just, hey, which tool do you like? Right. And it could be, you know, as someone that had done the discovery or knew about the requirements, like, you know, we need to pick an ORM, but we're all about speed. And this is not about tooling or... Right, right what the project calls for. Right. What the actual work. Yeah, and I think it's, it's also, it's, it's what the, you know, obviously what the project calls for, but... The other, the other thing that I see playing into that is the team itself and your relationship to them and their stage of development as a team. Like the, the Roy Osher of, look, you recommended to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the Notes to a software team leader. Yeah, yep. Yeah. The, there's that whole idea of, you know, you're in kind of panic mode at, you know, maybe at first when a team is still coming together, if the, if the code's a mess, if the project is on a really tight schedule things like that that basically the team is not it's not a place for a democracy somebody needs to grab every everything you know by the horns and say this is the way we're going until until you get like into that safe into a, into a, into a safer ground and you're no longer in, in survival survival mode is what he calls it that's right yeah so yeah it's, and when you're no longer in survival mode and you know things are a little more even pace then you can start you can open up things and you trust your team more and they trust you more then things can open up in a more democratic way there was another talk that i heard and the speaker's name escapes me now but again it was his talk was on the transition to leadership and one of his big points was that if you come into a new project or if you suddenly have leadership over a team that you didn't have before they shouldn't make any big changes right away. He said psychologically, people just won't buy into it. And uh, he was basically saying you need to be on the team and earn some credibility and then start changing stuff. But like if you show up on day one and say, okay, we're changing the process or we're changing our ORM because I don't like the ORM you're using, you just get an unending <coughs> amount of pushback against that. Mm -hmm. But once you've earned some credibility. I think it's more respect than. Yeah. Yeah, because if you just come in and say we're changing this, then that creates a perception that you don't understand all the thought and every yeah. planning that went into the decision to go this direction in the first place. Yeah, it's salting your food before you taste it. My talk was on Script CS, which I don't know how familiar are you guys with Script CS? I've seen yeah. it in your demos. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is an incredibly useful little tool in a lot of ways. And just like being able to run little snippets of C-sharp. 
or having a C-sharp as a scripting language. Um, but I did have, I got some pushback in the talk about, well, what's the, the practical use of this? Because in my demo, I use ScriptCS to fire a Nerf gun, which is, I don't know why you'd want to do it. How's that not practical? Yeah, I don't know. Seems like a fairly self-evident thing to me. Well, if you work in the defense industry, <laughs> <laughs> swap out a replace Nerf gun with missile launcher. They make missile launchers that fire Nerf bullets too. So, I mean, it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. But we had some interesting discussions after the session about um, what are practical uses of physical computing in the office, right? So the one that I came up with, and I've heard of people that do this, like, so the build breaks and a siren goes off. Not just on the PC, but like a physical siren. Or, uh, you know, the build is broken, so red lights come on. But it seems like there ought to be other interesting things you could do with ScriptCS and the ScriptCS Arduino library to, you know, kind of remind you that it's time to enter your time or, I don't know. So yeah. I spent, spent some time thinking about that. I don't know if I came up with any really practical reasons. A lot of fun ones. Yeah, I think being able to poke at C-sharp on a command line, that's that's pretty, in terms of development workflow, that's pretty self-evident how, um, how useful that would be. Can you, when you uh, run script-sharp, or script-cs, can you include like your own libraries? Can you mm -hmm. point it at DLLs to... So it's not just the core framework. So yeah, the, the core framework you have access to uh, without doing anything else. One of the brilliant things about ScriptCS is that it's integrated with NuGet. So if there's a NuGet package out there, you just say ScriptCS-install space NuGet package name, right. and then you have it. But then from within ScriptCS, there is an additional command that's not necessarily in C-sharp, it's pound R. If you do pound R, it's like adding a reference to a DLL. Nice. The corollary in Visual Studio is references, add reference, and then the DLL could be in the GAC, it could be from NuGet, it could be your code. Mm -hmm. And then once you have, you've added that reference in ScriptCS, then you can just use it however you want. Yeah. So, and, and, then, then, and then how far down does it go? Like, can you pull in a web config? Can you rely on other bits of stuff that would ordinarily come through, you know, the, AS, or the IIS pipeline? You know, like... Just thinking well, in terms of pulling in, pulling in code you're writing and, and playing with it like that, it might it might get a little. So I don't know about the config file stuff specifically. That's an interesting question, though. But in terms of like the IIS stuff, I've seen <coughs> blog posts where people host Nancy in ScriptCS, hmm. and it's really easy to make an HTTP request from ScriptCS. So you say pound r system .net .http, right? And then you add the using, and they say you know, instantiate a client and client dot get string is async in the URL. Hmm. Which is, you know, if you ever really wanted to get the text of a web page back really quickly. Do it every morning. <laughs> but, I mean, you could just do that with PowerShell as well. Yeah, so... Curl. In a lot of... There is a big... If you would draw a Venn diagram, the capabilities of PowerShell and the capability of ScriptCS overlap substantially. Mm -hmm. Uh, the big difference, of course, is that ScriptCS is C sharp. Is C sharp, right? And so, I imagine that PowerShell would always be more um, appealing to IT admins, and ScriptCS would be more 
appealing to developers, but there's places for both. I mean, the PowerShell mm -hmm. APIs to all the Microsoft back office applications are really nice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have a hard time remembering the PowerShell syntax because I don't use it very much. Yeah, I guess I've just used it a lot, not necessarily for IT admin stuff, but like. Well, I guess we're playing with, uh, uh, not really playing with, but uh, working with SharePoint uh, inside PowerShell and, uh, you know, creating utilities inside PowerShell. It can be a very nice tool to have when, like, you're trying to debug a remote uh, server. You can write a, or a remote database uh, on an environment that you don't really have access to. You can write code to query the remote database in a very small number of lines. So... You know, one of the other nice things about Script CS is being able to test out two or three lines of C Sharp really quickly. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to do a small test of some C Sharp <coughs> in Studio, you would have to open Studio, create a project, which would create a, create a solution, uh, which would create a class, which would create a namespace. And then you have to compile. And you have to <laughs> compile it. Yeah. Whereas in Script CS, you know, you're at a command prompt, Script CS, type out the lines. And this, the example, the canonical example that I use is the formatting for string.format. Because mm. string.format, the base case is really easy. But let's say that we had a double that help, was holding a value for pi, and we wanted to do a string.format that would write a line, the value in a 20-character space, and then limit it to five decimal places. You guys know that string.format could do that. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how string.format nope. is? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's what Google's for. Yeah. And it, but see, <laughs> that one in particular, the reason that I use that is that if you Google it, what you'll get is the MSDN documentation, which has a long list of the features available in string.format. And so what's nice is to be able to drop into script CS and just guess and check. Hmm. That's why I usually <clears throat> use a PowerShell for, because you can do all of that inside of PowerShell, and you just kind of keep updating the same line and running it. But that's what you can do in Scripts, yes. Yeah. But you don't have to remember PowerShell syntax. Oh, I, I don't have a problem with it, so uh, for some people it's... So I basically think this is going to come down to Brock and I getting in a fist fight, which I'm looking forward to. Someday. <laughs> <laughs> Another case that you brought up string.format is like if you wanted to create or validate a regular expression or something, it'd be mm -hmm. a quick, easy way to set that up. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you guys ever use regular expressions at all. But oh, yeah. I really like regular expressions. What's wrong with you? That's what people always ask me. <laughs> <laughs> What's the old joke? There's a developer that thought he had a problem and said, I know, I'll use a regular expression to solve this. Now he has two problems. Yep. Yeah, but those are for people who don't know how to do regular oh, expressions. Oh, so the regular expression guy. <laughs> I've heard I've heard that joke with um, with all kinds of stuff dropped into it. Most recently, SharePoint. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. And the variations on the SharePoint version of the joke. It was now you have fifteen problems. <laughs> <laughs> and every time you click, you get an extra problem. Yeah, including PowerShell. He said, twisting the it's not twisting the knife in me. <laughs> it's not hurting me at all. The other interesting thing about Script CS is that it is compiled with ROS, which is, you know, sweet. That's really cool. My pet technology right now. So did, did they include Roslyn with Update 2 
of Visual Studio 2013? It's in the uh, Visual Studio VNX CTP, but it's not okay. in. I think at this point, I'd be surprised if they included it in 2013 at this point, because it's a big change. Yeah. Well, I had uh, I'd seen a notification on Visual Studio, or in Visual Studio, notifying me that there was an update too, and the update size was going to be like 6.5 gigs. That seems like quite an update for you know Visual Studio. I'm trying to still figure out what all is included in the. There's a lot of image. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> got some videos. If you there is a download on the Roslyn site that's called it's the Roslyn End User Preview, and if you install that, it will change the compiler in VS twenty thirteen to be Roslyn. But you was that the path that you were going in? Uh, like you had to open up a special instance of Visual Studio, or did that just replace? Uh, the the uh, end user preview completely replaces your compiler. Okay. If you install the SDK preview, that was yes. the thing that I showed. Where okay. In your presentation. Yeah, you have one Visual Studio instance open. You hit debug, it opens a second instance of Visual Studio that has Roslyn compiler. And okay. isn't that that's what happens whenever you develop a plugin mm-hmm. for Visual Studio anyway? Yeah, yeah. There's it's one of those fun inception moments where I had a version of Visual Studio. I hit debug to launch a second version of Visual Studio that was running the Roslyn compiler, and I opened up the open source implementation of Roslyn so it compiled itself. Right, so I had a Visual Studio running a Visual Studio that was using Roslyn to compile Roslyn, and it really didn't prove much to do that, but it's fun to say. Mm-hmm. You know, like you do. <laughs> Why wouldn't you want to compile Rosalind in that fashion? I heard you like compilers. <laughs> so the other thing that has come up around the office recently is um, discussion about new languages. Did you guys get a chance to read that? Mm-hmm. I, I skimmed the first paragraph. Did you get to the part where part of the first paragraph. where I said that per- new programming languages are like new menu items at Taco Bell? Just yeah. recombinating. Yeah, <clears throat> old things. Well, that's and there's. I have a book on on my nightstand that I haven't really read yet, but I flipped through, and it's that. It's one of those kind of books. It's a little too small to be a coffee table book, but it's written kind of. But it's uh, uh, "Steal Like an Artist" by Austin Kleon. Have you seen that? No, I have not. Okay, so basically, the the whole thesis is that there's not. You know, there is. There are no new parts, and all we're doing is you know stealing from this, stealing from that putting together something quote-unquote new. Yeah, everything since the Big Bang has been derivative. So. <laughs> but the, the the thought process I was going through was, you know, started when Swift came out, because people were saying, well, Swift is a new language, and it is a new language, but it doesn't really have any new ideas. It's just mm-hmm. a different combination of ideas that have been out there. Right. And so I was comparing... syntactic sugar. Yeah. But I was comparing it to the new Quesarito at Taco Bell. <laughs> So yeah, to your to your you make a, a really good point in that the, none of these things are really turning, you know, programming on its head. They're just tweaking and nudging and saying, hey, that's pretty nice. Let's use that too. But you know, it's and it's not. It's it's like we've got the idea of a programming language kind of down, and every all the variants they're not really adding as much value. But we're tying. What what is the valuable piece is what platforms each language is tied to. We've only got a couple of a handful of languages that can be used on any platform, but most of them are tightly associated one or the other. That's 
you know, what can, what actually are you doing with the lunch? Not so much how lunch does. Seems to be where the value. But the, the language is a tool to help you implement a solution to a problem in potentially a certain fashion. Mm-hmm. It can be a tool to keep you going on the road of, you know, following whatever paradigms a certain language implements. Paul Graham wrote a an awesome essay on how Lisp or how every other language was essentially just going to copy everything that Lisp did and he listed out like nine or ten things that were you know just built into Lisp but were slowly being added to other languages like Java and C Sharp and you know any of the C languages mm-hmm. like Lambdas like the um, garbage collection and like there were like many other good examples and there were only as of like a year ago when I last looked at it there were only two left that like C sharp didn't implement that list had Mm. and I would encourage everybody to read that list because it's kind of funny that people say that you know there's nothing new we're just kind of creating stuff it seems more like we're taking this stuff from other languages and just bolting them into uh, our existing languages. Well, what? As well, what platform? I'm not. I've I've never worked in Lisp. What platforms would you do work on? Uh, it works on Linux, uh, Windows, and Mac. Right. And, and I think there's derivatives for or ports to other operating systems. Yeah. Well, well and so. and you know, and the other thing is words. Words and phrases make their way between human languages too. Yes, definitely. Right. And people so don't like, really hey, speak in parentheses. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and say it in French. Yeah, P- people don't really speak in parentheses or like the parentheses that list makes you uh, use. But that's how it goes. But to your point, Brock, I, I think you're actually reinforcing what I'm saying is that a lot of the new languages that have come out in the last two years are just different combinations of things that other languages have had for a long time. Right. I agree with you. I'm saying that it's not only just that, but other, uh, our existing languages that we use all the time, like in C Sharp, uh, we're taking stuff from other languages and bolting them into what we already use. And it's not... An- might see my angle on it is yeah we are we're absolutely we're absolutely doing that with C sharp but the reason is not that C sharp is the draw it's what you can do in C sharp is the draw so we yeah. just we want this feature to be available on this platform and so the language steals from something else mm-hmm. well a lot of times too it's not just stealing stuff from other languages but a new quote unquote feature a lot of times it's just a more simplified way of doing the same thing, like going way back uh, to the old school days when properties first came out in .NET, right? I mean, it's, mm. it's just a getter and setter method. It's just a wrapper for that. It's, exactly. it's the same old thing. It's not doing anything new. It's just it a new down. way of implementing it. And I mean, that became pretty popular. So. Mm. And when it get you know is compiled down to IL, it's still right. changed over to two, yep, <laughs> the exactly. functions. And, but then I, I thought it was kind of funny that once they had the properties, then people complained that you had to type too much in there. So then they, they created the, the shortcut, yeah. or the, uh, the shorthand properties that really always amused me, mm-hmm. people. But that's the, the route that it went. So am I wrong? Am I missing some language feature that's come out in the last two to three years? We There's always so much you can do with ones and zeros, man. <laughs> 
mean, there's been a lot of new languages coming there's out. There's only 12 notes. You should stop making music. Every new song is just using the same old notes in different combinations, is what we're saying. Well, but if you no, think I, about, I think, I think you're you're right. There's well, like well, I guess Python's not really new. List comp, uh, list comprehensions in Python were pretty. I don't know if it was revolutionary, but it was a pretty big deal with Python. But um, that really came out of functional programming languages that have had those for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I think the paradigms that we are kind of merging together, uh, it's that we're just, computers are getting to a state where uh, object-oriented programming can pull problem-solving kind of uh, mindsets from functional programming and other other types of programming, like uh, list querying, you know, link. Uh, and, you know, the, the same is going for the other direction as well. So I, I think you're right. Uh, it's There hasn't been really any new idea. I mean, the patterns have really existed for quite a long time. I'm, I'm always surprised that when, when you dig into the history of, you know, even just the last few decades, but then further back into computer, early computer science and mathematics and how much of this they already had figured out and we just... You know, or we discovering lost because we're drag dropping trolls, and you know, but yeah. and it was like your your last blog post about uh, Dijkstra. Yeah, Dijkstra and test driven development. He he kind of had it all worked out, and then we were like, "Yep, that's a nice idea. Let's go write a bunch of procedural code." For every generation that has one really smart person that kind of sees sees the the clearing through the fog. It takes people a long time to kind of wrap their head around the new way of thinking or a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if we look back at Albert Einstein when he came up with the theory of uh, relativity, that wasn't something that really people bought into. He it was at least initially. It took some time for people to actually understand and kind of change their their entire way of thinking. And once they did, it just kind of, oh, yeah, we, it just it makes sense. It flows. And then once the, once they understand this or that thing, they can stand on, on top of that foundation and build, you know, skyscrapers and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, it was the hair. They had to get past the hair. Exactly. <laughs> no, the hair came after the theory. The crazy. Uh, I don't remember. I, I, I've never seen you a picture remember. of uh, uh, Albert Einstein pre. Uh, that was all neat and, like, curly and brown. <clears throat> Maybe the spiky hair, he just like, he forgot to hear about it. Yeah. No, I'm slagging on Einstein. <laughs> yeah, that's slacker. <laughs> yeah, so here's, oh, ahead, I, I, I like the idea that uh, it's good to remember that there hasn't, there, there hasn't been really anything overtly new, but bringing, uh, remembering that you can learn other programming languages and try and bring those patterns and mindsets into what you're doing. I think that is so valuable and it it can help you solve problems that, you know, in potentially C sharp, you you might have done it in, you know, 20 lines of code, but since you knew Python, you were you changed how you kind of solve problems. You might have solved it in 5. And I'm sure the the same goes the other direction as well. But the more languages you play around with, you learn the kind of the syntactic sugars and you know the 
the goal of what people were trying to accomplish when they were designing the language, uh, or in, potentially not even when they were designing the language, what the language evolved into, right? that is really, really powerful. When I learn a, 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 a different language that's not a Microsoft-based language, uh, you know, I like to go out and learn those things because the stuff that those languages are doing now that .NET doesn't do, .NET will do eventually. <laughs> and to be able to already have that mindset and be able to use that mindset, uh, that just means that you're a couple steps ahead uh, yeah. once that actually comes out. Yeah, well, uh, you were you know you were mentioning the uh, functional programming concepts making their way into you know into non-functional languages, but you know th there's also you know it's functional as part technique as well. Right. That you can you can program functionally in a non-functional language. It's just it's it's an approach as well as you know so picking up those other features from from languages we don't see every day and bringing that mindset back something like c-sharp it's it's that triangulation and like learn another another human language you've got another channel for your thoughts to go down you know instead of just thinking english all the time. that's a really good language. point because a lot of the other languages a lot of times tend to be tailored to solving specific types of problems so mm -hmm. Like you said, it's all the approach. You know, what's the nature of the problem that can help steer you? Mm -hmm. uh, I've found that if when you ha when you're presented with a problem and it doesn't, uh, it it could be a difficult problem. If you just kind of take a step to the right or you know the proverbials, you know, look at the the problem from you know a forty five degree angle, you can get a very different view of the problem, and usually. A lot easier way to solve it and that, that can be a very useful tool yeah for me that's like getting up taking a step to the right and going down to the parking lot getting in my car and driving home <laughs> by the time I get to that light down there I've solved the problem exactly that, that was costing me all afternoon yeah yep kind of shift gears a little bit yeah so just read this book called an astronaut's guide to life on earth by Chris Hadfield who was the commander of the ISS Probably most famous for making the space oddity video while he's oh, on right. that while, while he's on the space station. Ridiculously good Bowie impression too. Yeah, and you know, smart dude. Which I I totally recommend the book. It's a it's a fun read. Yeah. But one of the things that I was thinking about was he was talking about how at NASA when there's something scary, what they do is they practice it and practice and practice it, and not just like the happy path. What if this goes wrong? What if this goes wrong? What if this goes wrong? And I was thinking about that, like, well, how does that translate into our industry? And recompiled. Well, I was actually the, <laughs> the thing I was thinking about was deployments, because that's you know, one of the more nerve-wracking things. Really, what we ought to do is practice deployments. It's probably not enough to say, well, if the database rollout goes bad, we'll roll it back. Yeah. And maybe maybe you know how to do that, but have you practiced it? Like, have you practiced a rollback in your dev environment? Have you practiced a database restore in your dev environment? So I was just thinking about that a lot. It kind of reminded me of Jeff Atwood saying that backups never fail, restores do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess I've, I've kind of had this idea rattling around in my head about how do we apply that tech in our industry. I think, the, at least in my mind, that it seems analogous to setting up you know, builds on a build server being able to document step-by-step step what needs to happen to get your software out on another environment. 
But then do you practice when it goes wrong? No. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily, like when you create, a, for example, an automated build that happens on check-in, for, for instance, um, you're practicing the happy path over and over. Once that build works and everything, you know, your tests run and all that, and the software is deployed, that's the happy path over and over. What, you know, <coughs> where does it come in where you're doing corner cases in that? To me, it reads more like unit testing, which is, you know, try it from this angle, try it from that angle, you know, maybe on one component at a time, but it's, I don't know. I don't know, is it more, is it more build process or more unit test? I guess you could apply the philosophy of both scope. The point is well, to the I point is to exercise it, not to just cross your fingers and. Yeah, I, I think the deployment path kind of falls <clears throat> when, if the build fails, it's not going to deploy. So it's the compiler is kind of your your checker. So when things go bad and somebody checks on something that makes the, the build not compile or a test fail, that's. That's that. I think that's where that kind of falls flat. But I, I like your unit test analogy. Wasn't a big problem with when you start talking about deployment, more environmental. I mean, what things have in the production environment have been configured what way versus in the development environment? You know, you, you're working in development, everything's good. But then when you deploy it, it security. breaks because yeah, there was some security configuration or some account or something that wasn't right. I mean, that's really more the stuff that will get you right, right, more often. Well, than and that's that, the whole so. continuous deployment philosophy, where we the first thing we do on day one is set up this pipeline that goes directly into production. You know, like walking into prison and beating up the biggest guy there. Like I'm going to tackle the hardest problem. <laughs> I'm speaking from experience, of course. Um, but you know that he's got the you tackle the biggest, it. scariest thing, and it's all downhill from there. You know, you know, you can roll into production, and mm -hmm. this smallest piece of functionality works in production. Good, build on that. You know, instead of obviously big bang deployment at the end. I I love build, uh, creating a build. It, it reduces so much stress and. Like if I'm not here on a day, uh, I can have someone else uh, do a deployment by you know, right-click, queue new build, mm -hmm. and you know it it the it just goes and does it. You don't have to worry about people fat fingering something or changing or forgetting to change a, a web config yeah. uh, setting or something like that. But now what you're talking about though is like a new system though, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes. So that means you're more likely to find that in, in a newer system, that ability, yeah. that capability. But deploying. But you I could mean, have you something. Apply, you apply that to a legacy system. You could have an existing mm -hmm. system where something changes in the production environment that you didn't know about while you were developing. Oh, that's not part of a. You mean that's not part of a, a build or not part of yeah. a software change? Just something environmental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ideas, and somehow it's. It can, well, it can interact uh, somehow with your new code to work. That's where... Chaos Monkey. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the Simeon Army thing in Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, have you heard? Have you yeah, heard no, I'm, okay. yeah, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess, but that's that's operating on code that's already deployed, right? What is the the Chaos the Monkey? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, so, they, I guess. They, well, there's a Chaos Gorilla that takes out whole servers at a time. I yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But I guess what I was thinking about is some, something that. Could potentially change, I guess, and I'm I'm probably overthinking it, but just something that could change that really doesn't affect what's deployed now, but it interacts with changes you've made in the development mm -hmm. environment. And then once you deploy it, now all of a sudden, you know, we've got a problem mm -hmm. because we were when we were developing this, we were assuming that this was, you know, this 
configuration wherever it was going to stay the same and it didn't and nobody connected the dots yeah we had an issue beforehand. where on the system i'm working on now where we had it working and all of a sudden it stopped working without a code change and what it ended up being was that there's some new security software put in place that was filtering out some of our packets because they thought they were malicious they were obviously not but that was one of those things where we had to figure out what was wrong. And it wasn't so much, at some point, it wasn't figure out what's happening. It was figuring out who can fix this. And so that became the solution to the problem was getting on the phone, like, who has permissions to open up this port and firewall? Or who has permissions to whitelist this IP? That was kind of an unfortunate challenge. All that to say, I agree with you, you should practice deployment. <laughs> but also, and not just practice deployments, pra you know, have a plan for, you know, if I have to roll this back, can I do it? Does someone else have to do it? What are the what are the steps? Yeah. And it's easier when you have control over the entire environment. But with a lot of our clients, you know, maybe we don't have DBO access to all the databases yeah. or admin rights to the servers. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess kind of branching off that subject and with some clients we don't even have access to the deployment. We're just kind of handing it off. And right. Then, then if there's problems you don't know what was done and what wasn't done. And yeah. Maybe that's a use for your Script CS and your Neduino hooking up to a bunch of power supplies that are connected to different servers and just <laughs> have Neduino <laughs> power the servers off. I can Next see. sees me point at the server <laughs> and the server reboots and everything works. <laughs> Boom. I give you free license to use that at your next talk. <laughs> why would you? Why would you reasonably want to to use this outside of firing a Nerf gun? Well, you could change it to power off. Uh, <laughs> Control a drone that hovers over the IT dude's shoulder and watches him copy the files and adjust configurations to make sure he doesn't. And shoots him with a Nerf gun if he doesn't. Yeah.